Ladies and gentlemen, after some considerable periods of absence caused by nothing less important than actually being on the river, welcome back to the Broken Oars podcast. Aaron, do we need to apologise to our to our decent and kindly listener folk who hopefully are sticking with us? I think that we should we should just point out that um, yes, it's all our fault. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, man, we, we have been distracted by going from talking about pushing ourselves backwards down flat rivers by pushing ourselves backwards down flat rivers. Pretty much. I think that is the main reason why we have moved from being bi-weekly, which is not what I actually thought it was when I looked it up, to being thri-weekly. Um, we're hoping to get back to bi-weekly at some point, but let's be fair and honest, dear listener. I know that you're still out there. Sun is out, guns are out. Get on the water and make some noise, or not, if it's a boat with a cox in. The cox always has the last word. Indeed. In my case, it's more sun's out, tums out, I think. I, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite the, the same svelte figure of a man I, I was once. But yes, we, we are, and I think, I think we, should, we should just like take a moment before we, we talk about our guest. We should actually say that we've both, over the course of the past, what was it, six, eight weeks, started rowing, as in proper, on the river, sculling again and both of us are sculling you're, you're not doing any of this sweep or nonsense no no I- yeah and, and and i have started sort of rather than just like pulling ergos for this funny little boat club um in the middle of east kent called spitfire i've actually started going rowing with them where i'm actually going to a rowing race i'm going back to british masters championships in a week's time should we retitle this podcast Lou and Hines, Lust for Gold? This obsession with medals that you have and winning stuff. It feels nice, but I mean, no, we're going there. We don't have any illusions about where we are in the boat, me and James Knight, <coughs> who is secretly one of the most competitive men on earth. And yes, I'm, I'm probably the second most competitive man on earth secretly, but yes, we're, we're going back there. We're going to push ourselves backwards across a ditch in Nottingham and it's going to be really good fun and we're probably going to get beaten by other slightly more adapted middle-aged men but it's it's this very very strange thing so once it gets you its hooks into you this kind of okay right we're rowing again it's very difficult just to leave it as oh, this is a good way of, like, socialising with your mates and keeping fit, you suddenly think, hmm, I wonder how much faster we will go compared to those guys from Peterborough. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. I'm trying to think of something apposite and witty along the lines of, you know, you can take the boy out of Newcastle, but you can't take Newcastle out of the boy. You can take the competitive animal out of Lou and Hines, but actually, let's be quite frankly honest, you can't. I don't have anything. I don't have anything witty to say other than the fact that I'm just enjoying the fresh air and exercise. I'm not remotely competitive. I haven't actually done an erg to see what my current 2K score is. Anyone who says otherwise is lying. Uh, it's all about the paddle for me. The it's got to be said that the paddle is actually very nice as well. There, there is just this kind of like a very, very special feeling. 
it's a little bit like flying. It is. I think what we're trying to say, dear listeners, is that lockdown has sort of kind of started to lift, even though we'll probably face another one. The weather has turned um, reasonably nice, at least over the last week. And this wonderful sport that um, Loon and I have been yakking about for most of the last year, we can actually go and do it again. And that's fantastic. It is. Oh, and I, I've also, I've, I've started to indoctrinate my eldest child into, into the sport. She went mm-hmm. coxing the other day. She, she, she coxed the boat and didn't crash for two kilometres. And then we swapped for someone else's daughter who's being indoctrinated into the sport. Fantastic. Just like this, it's just this brilliant process of just like, this is how it gets. It gets passed down. It is. And it's, you know, as, as the Jesuits used to say, give me a boy until the age of four and I will give you the man. And the Catholics just used to say, just give me a boy till the age of four. You've got to get them while they're young. Oh, that's going to make it to the floor, isn't it? I speak as a fully staunch and confirmed Roman, Roman Catholic. Um, some of the things the Catholic Church have done have been absolutely horrific. We might cut that bit out. I don't yeah, know. Might but, but yeah, it is, it is this, you know, it is the Jack Beaumont principle. So like get them, get them coxing at the age of eight and then so like at the age of 10, maybe like, I know you're sitting there now. There, there's one or there's another or this is how you put on them. And then you go from that and you end up going to the Olympics in Tokyo. I, I don't know how it's going to end up or possibly you just end up with this ready-made community of people. You know, you've touched on a very important point, the way it's passed down and, and how it can lead to the Olympics at Tokyo. And, and we've, we've heard that they're on. And we think that is a wonderful idea. We don't think anything could possibly go wrong with that. It, would that uh, be- yeah, Aaron, I mean, I mean, what could possibly go wrong with of having the Olympics at Tokyo at the moment? Can't think of anything. I, I, I think the IOC's decision to hold the games is purely athlete driven. You know, people have been saying it's monetary. I, I don't think it's that at all. I think the waivers they're making the athletes sign are perfectly reasonable. And um, yeah, it's all about the fun and purity and sanctity of sport. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sanctity and purity of sport. We had a conversation uh, a while back with a very, very interesting lady. Who did we talk to? I can't believe that I'm about to say it. This is, ladies and gentlemen, you have come to us over the last year. You have graced us with your with your listenership. Is, is that a thing, like a readership? Yep. You, have, you have put up with us debating whether Conan the Barbarian would, would, would get Matthew Pinson's seat in an eight. And you've done it because you know that we are counterintuitive. We are the voice that the establishment fears. We, we are the people who say the things that other rowing podcasts won't say. And unfortunately on this one, we have to admit we've gone full establishment. We have, we, we have, we've gone very nearly to the top of British rowing. Some would say the power behind the throne. Some would say, some would say. Some would say. Um, <laughs> Blimey. Yes. Um, We have talked to Kate O'Sullivan, who is a very important person in British rowing and has held many roles and was, and I think, I, I don't think we've actually talked to anyone boring on this podcast. 
I mean, maybe, um, maybe each other. Each each other, obviously. But, you know, it was very, very noticeable that dealing with Kate, you are dealing with the kind of person you need in your rowing club. Awful. Let's go. Come on, Louis. (sighs) Okay. Come on, lad. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for coming back to the Broken Oars podcast with my good friend, Aaron Jackson, and more importantly, Deputy Chair of British Rowing, we have gone establishment, Kate O'Sullivan. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. Thank you so much for agreeing to have a chat with us. My absolute Um, pleasure. Kate, we usually try and start with, I mean, just launching in Tell us a little bit about yourself. We do sort of have a, a cheeky sort of shorthand for age. We, we do ask people what their master's category is. Do you know, I don't even know what my master's category is. Uh-huh. I'll make it easy. I mean, I, yeah, I'm older okay. than Di Binley, so I'm 57. I don't care. Three was a good vintage. Well done, Loon. You've just you just spoiled our noble record of never asking a lady or a gentleman their age. You've you've got you've got the deputy chair of British Rowing to admit her age live on air. She's Listen, my juniors think I'm really really old because I introduced our club captains' parents to each other. So I'm not hiding anything there. <laughs> so as well as deputy chair, you you run a rowing matchmaking service. Is, is I do. I fantastic. do. Fantastic. Yeah, I'd like, yeah, yeah, I'd like yeah, to yeah. put my name in the hat for that. If if there's. I if must there's... record that as a conflict of interest. Actually, in my conflict of interest form. I, I think so. We are we are a sport that prides itself on its on its uh, probity. But also on matchmaking. I mean, there are an, a very very large number of people who have met because of rowing clubs. Well, we did. I mean, this is true. But and all, then you went and that, married somebody else and moved to Canterbury. I made no promises to you. You know that. You didn't it say was- that that night by the boat shed. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> But anyway, yeah. okay, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, how you got into rowing, and the important things that you are doing for rowing now? Oh, they're big questions. So, as I think I've already just said, I'm, I'm a southerner masquerading in the north. So, most people think that, you know, I'm a, a northerner because I live in, uh, I've lived in Stockton since 1985. Well, Stockton on Tees. Valley area but actually I was born in Clapham opposite Clapham South Underground Station so first 14 years of my life were in London um I first got involved in rowing being dragged along as a nine-year-old to watch my brother row for a manual school when it was a grammar and they had no money and I used to be dragged along to sell pin cushions to raise money for them to get a boat which I don't think he ever actually rode in. Um, and then I used to get a day off school to go and watch him in the school's head and things like that. So that was good. Uh, roll on to my parents moving to Hertfordshire and get into the sixth form at Chesham School. You know, rowing's offered as an option. I put my hand forward. Nope, sorry. We just take, we're taking eight boys. No girls, just taking eight boys. So then I went to university and by now, you know, I'm doing loads of sport. I loved my sport. Wasn't any good at any of it, but I just loved it. If he, if there was the ball involved, I'd hit it. I see athletics, 
falling over hurdles, all sorts of stuff. And then I went to university. I went to Leeds University. Um, didn't sign up for the rowing club. You know, I signed off my tennis and badminton and all sorts of stuff. Um, and then I tripped over playing tennis and whacked my hand and bust my thumb. So that scuppered everything that in my first term. I was at half the size I am now, and I was in my halls of residence, and someone came up to you and went, do you know, you're a bit gobby and you're light, and we haven't got a cox for the women's crew at Leeds. So do you know what, I went and had a go, and my brother was there going, don't do it, do not do it, don't get into coxing. You know, your wrist, your thumb's gonna be recovered soon. And yeah, that was in 1981, 1981, 82. And then I came to Teesside uh, for my job. So I did engineering at university, came to Stockton um, for my graduate recruitment placement. And I, I'd given up rowing. And on my first day at work, only female graduate, open plan office, the southerner. Someone comes in from Tees Rowing Club, Bob Bainbridge, who's still racing today, and says, you're that girl that cox leeds university's crew that kept beating us aren't you'll come and cox for us like all eyes looking on at you and i thought oh. like we were turning up at tees it was when it was tidal you know there were cars in it was a scrapyard the women's changing room was a shed literally next to them. and i and i was going to give up and i've been a member there since 1985 so that's sort of like how i got into rowing really and i've just stayed there since then I'm sensing there was a there was an, a brief urge to escape, but the gravitational pull of it just kind of kept you from leaving. Yeah, you yeah. Know. Do you know what? I had I had four fantastic years. I had four Greek fantastic years. But I didn't. I did love doing other sport. I loved my music as well. Um, and I just I knew that my involvement in rowing because I was at Leeds. I was coxing for York City as well. I was for actually rent a cox. Anyone needed a cox. I did join Broxbourne Rowing Club, which was the, the when I was in, in my holidays. So I was down there as well. And I, I just thought, you know, there's other things I want to do. And it's taken a lot of time up. And I know I'm venturing into this world of engineering. And I've got a degree in it, but I need to know it a bit more about it. And so I was going to go and do other things. But then I came down. Honestly, Tees Rowing Club at that time couldn't have been any more different than York City and you know uh, Round Hay Lake for Leeds and Broxbourne Rowing Club but the crew although they were always chucking me in and they drove me nuts they were a brilliant crew and that's what sort of drew me to it really so I loved it I really loved it that I mean that that is kind of one of the things that does just keep bringing people back in it's just like those chance encounters that end you up in a fantastic club. Um, can, can I just quick ask, did you ever cox your brother? No, I didn't. So um, he's five years older than me. So he went off to Liverpool University. And I can remember mum and dad were about, we were all packed up, ready to go to Hertfordshire. And he rang up and said, mum, our accommodations have fallen through for the men's head. Can you put up the men, the two eights? So everything <laughs> came out. He pretty much locked me in my bedroom. So, so I never really, I never really got to, no, not, right. I've, tried so, to get, I've tried to get him back rowing. I have, because he lives near Landaff Rowing Club. I've tried to get him back rowing. Oh, right, okay. But he's taken up these mad mountain marathon runs and things like that now. 
Okay, I'll phrase this very delicately because even though Loon and I take the piss out of each other about him being a Southerner and me being a Northerner, I have a huge amount of love and respect for him. But I'm very aware that in Britain, there's kind of a, there are rowers who row on an, on pastoral landscape past sylvan fields, and it's all very English Edwardian kind of, you know, they, they're the visuals you get. And then there are rowers who row on the Tees or the Irwell, and they have to treat stolen cars floating in the middle of the bay as a roundabout to help the circulation pattern. Was there something in the landscape and the fact that it was so it, it was so different to what you usually associate with rowing when you kind of mentally bring up a picture of rowing in your head that kind of pulled you in? Yeah, do you know, for me, it was re- I didn't have that at all. For, it's really interesting because I nearly drowned as a kid, so I hate being in, underwater. I absolutely hated being thrown in. So actually, the fact that I spent all my time out on the water is a bit nuts, really, because it took me a long time to be comfortable with shoving my head back under the water again. Mm. But I think there was always a, there's always been a little bit of me, which someone says you can't do something. Listen, if I think I can't, if someone said to me, you can't go and do a triple somersault, I tell you, yeah, that's fine. I can't do a triple somersault. But if someone tells you I can't do something and inwardly, I think, why can't I ever go at that? And actually, when I, I can, my first, I'd only coxed a few times and I ended up coxing the, the Leeds University eight at Trent Head. Now, what you have to understand in 1980, well, the early 80s, there weren't that many categories. There weren't that many women's crews there. And we, I'll tell you all sorts of stuff another time about it, but there was just something about the commitment and the people and the, and we just had a bit of fun. You know, we, were t- we weren't very good. We were a novice eight in a wooden boat and I was given instructions of every time a crew comes up to pass, you shout, go for 10. We were in with like Cambridge University, you know, Imperial First Day, all the th- top elite eights and there was us stuck in the middle of it and then and then the men's cock said to me when you get to Trentbridge shout go for home of course it's about, about another it's miles isn't it you've got another mile and a half two miles to go but there was something about it that it, it chucked it down with rain we'd had comments about where were all the women and someone had said to the guys well they're all in the, they're all helping making the sandwiches and making your cups of tea but there was just something about the camaraderie that brought brought me in really and I, I I genuinely think that the someone said it today actually in in a board meeting that the friend the friends that you make in rowing you make for life so for me it's all it's about the people as well as the you know where you row as well yeah because if you're all stuck on the start line in Trent and they've held you 45 minutes past your time and you're freezing you're all cold and wet no matter what age station or class you come from correct the fishermen are still chucking maggots at you, which I can remember. Yeah. Oh, it, was, it was there in your time as well, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I've had relatively few fights. I, I, I think I've just got really, really lucky. None of them have ever shouted at me. Um, the size of you. I wouldn't shout at you if yeah, I was a fisherman. Yeah, I was, I was sitting down at the time. How would they know? We use rivers with other people. And it's like I did quite a lot of my learning to row on the on the tideway. And so actually, to be honest, you're just in the middle of it. It doesn't really count. But, you know, on the stour, on the yard, all, all, all these quite, quite small, long, thin rivers. So fishermen apparently really don't like you. Kayakers hate you. Pleasure boats, they don't... They don't really register you're right there until you're about to run over them. 
and they hate the fact that you go faster than them. Is, is that something that we sort of like need to reach out to people about? I'm, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, because it, it, but it just occurred to me that it's like, there is this thing with fishermen. They hate us. Well, no, listen, do you know what? I mean, just to do a counter to that, I think to be fair to the fishermen that chuck maggots at us, and I tell you, when you're in the Cox's seat and a fisherman chucks maggots and you're waiting, you know, to be turned round to race, he was just angry that nobody had told him that there was going to be like 98 rocking up on his <laughs> afternoon when he was going fishing. And I, and I rem- my view of, on the whole fishing thing was changed years ago. So when, so Tees now, I should say, it's a beautiful beautiful stretch of water they've built the barrage you know it is absolutely fantastic um but the fisherman once said to me when we're doing all the consultation we worry about you lot we see you going out you know how are you going to get out of this spot and that spot if you go in and there's just something about mutual respect that they're just asking us just to nudge a little bit more into the middle of the river we don't have to hug the bank there are some there are always going to be some awkward devils there are awkward rowers as well but there's just something about respecting everyone who uses it sorry that's shocking is it Aaron? So you awkward all... rowers really gosh <laughs> never met one never met one in my time for starters they've they've come away to get a bit of peace and quiet they love being down by the river some of their fishing equipment is seriously expensive stuff you know it costs more than the boats that we're out in sometimes and so i think i just think there's a little bit of respect and when we came out of lockdown you know i took all my juniors out on lockdown we were just having a bit of fun after lockdown before i get trolled for taking people in lockdown but after lockdown and we were we were just having a bit of fun and just just knocking around and things and and it was really you know, they were saying god oh, great to see you back great to see you back really lovely to see you back but what we also forgot was that we understand what the rowing rules of the river are but for a kayaker they they want to cut the corners and so it, yeah. there is something just about being respectful now you don't always get respect back but there is just something about being respectful about we've all got to use this space together and you know what if they've got a if they've got a fishing competition then that's something we could coordinate so we understand there's a fishing competition on we can't we can't control the seal however who sometimes pops up you know stripping the salmon away in the middle of it that's out of our control we can't be take the blame for that one so how how is it is it just the one seal or is there like the whole whole group of them it's a Spanish seal loon. He's, he's come from the EU to strip Britain of precious fish stocks, and then he's going to bugger off back to Gibraltar. I thought, I thought that was the Belgian seal. But there's loads of them. Um, so we're on the northeast coast, so they should be coming from anywhere. No, so when we have the barrage um, built, um, occasionally there is the odd seal that quite wisely finds its way through the lock and or up the up the fish uh, a little fishing channel, and you can't blame him because the richness of the uh, the richness of the um, the salmon we've got there now. So it, he's you might get one or two during the course of a year who either okay. get stranded or decide just to go to a nicer place. But if you go down to the um, you know that, down to the outlet of the sea, then you'll find seal sands. There's a good reason it's called seal sands. There's a lot of seals there. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there, there, there's there's a place in Norfolk like that. And I mean, well, I, I don't know. I certainly since I was growing up, when you know falling in the Thames was it was it was a case for a trip to the hospital and getting hepatitis vaccinations. Happy days. I, you know, it it ha- that I think must be have been a brilliant change. 
in all our lives is oh. is what has happened to British waters. Oh, incredible. I, I can remember racing on the Liverpool docks, which you guys will know well, before you two were out of short trousers, really, but before you went... We're still in short trousers. That's right, that's true. <laughs> listen to us. Um, but I, so I can remember, it's probably like 82, 83, something like that, um, and someone in our crew couldn't race, so I got promoted from Cox to... or demoted from Cox to Bow. Um, and I can remember, seriously stood there looking at it, and you could barely see below the surface of the water... And all you saw was like human debris following, you know, excrement following by. And somebody quite seriously came up to me and went, it's really clear today, isn't it? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and I can remember when I first came, when I first came to the River Tees, Tidler River, in order to get out at low tide, you literally had to climb out over a, an open sewage pipe. Now, if I think, <sighs> if you look at our river now, you know, it's not tidal anymore because we've got the barrage, we've got swans all over the place, we've got herons, we've got kingfishers. You know, it's just beautiful. And I think the job, the work that people have done to clean up the rivers has been fantastic. I think I think the Irwell, to be fair, though, um, they sealed off the docks and they cleaned out the side. Um, so a, a lot of the old docks have been cleaned and reoxygenated and populated with fish. And the fishermen tend to kind of congregate there but the Irwell runs all the way up into the the kind of northwest and then down past Manchester Cathedral it's a it's a it's a nice long stretch of water to row on but it's still very close to the river that made Engels cry and invent communism it's pretty if there's if there's heavy rainfall you will find you know fridges and cars floating in it the next time you sort of go out. I did I did race at Agecroft Regatta years ago a long long Mm. time ago um and I can remember, it might have been your mate Dennis or Kevin, I don't know, I can remember one of them saying, the really good thing about the Irwall is it never freezes up because of the pollution we've got in here. <laughs> I was just going to come to that. I, I mean, De- I'm not sure that, that Dennis would like, you know, to be associated with us <laughs> as his friends, having trained us and shouted at us a lot. But Kev used to tell stories about going down past the Colgate factory on cold winter's nights, and they'd all put their hands in, in the water to, to get their hands warm. And they stopped doing it when they realised that whatever was in the water was eating the bottom of their boats. So, you know, it's it's a lot better than it was, but it's still uh, it, it's still a bit monkey at times. But but there's also, I mean, lots of our rowing clubs are doing brilliant stuff as well around keeping the rivers clean and things. So I, mm. if you think of Anne Hock, who's down in Leicester, and she will talk about the fact that, you know, they work alongside their river authority and they'll go off as a club. Um, I think they get paid a little bit for it as well and, and they clean up all the litter and... You went into rowing in at a point when it was quite a male-dominated sport, and you went into engineering at a point where it was still quite a male-dominated profession. Was there difficulty achieving what you wanted to do in 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 either, or was it just a case of I, I like this? You're gonna have to. I'm staying. You're gonna have to put up with me because I'm just I'm just kind of thinking we, we still have issues with female representation on the coaching side and that kind of thing at, um, at, at all levels, not just the elite level. Um, did I come up against any barriers? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did come up with some, across some barriers. Are those um, barriers still alive? Were those barriers still alive? <laughs> yeah, no, they were. They were. They were. They, they were. Back to the seal. Um, but they. So for the rowing club, when I arrived at Tees, there were still two female members, uh, but they were just leaving. So they had a very successful women's crew. Um, but they, they literally, you know, time was moving on um, for de- various reasons they'd moved on. Um, so 
it was a bit weird but for a while being the only woman there but it, it wasn't long before we started to get a few people down and you know other at the time ICI for example employed lots and lots of graduates so you started to get other people turning up who, who'd rowed a bit on and then we just started to run a few campaigns and things and we just started to to get a few more in um I think for me when I was in engineering it was really interesting because on the one hand you know you were the one that was different I can remember my first week it was the Cleveland Institute Engineers or the Cleveland Institute of Engineers annual dinner it wasn't my bad I really wasn't that fussed about that sort of stuff and my mum gave me a really long hard chat as mums can do and said look you've elected we wanted you to go and do music you've elected to go into blooming wasn't just engineering but it was minerals engineering as well so um you know your granddad fought very hard to keep people like you out the mines and things and here you are wanting to go back into that area um so you're either going to be in this or you're going to be out of this if this is the big annual event then you go to it i remember going to have to find a dress and i turned up at the Dragonara in Middlesbrough. Um, and there was something like 300 odd people in that room. And at that time, apart from all the other, like the waitresses and the maitre d', I was the only woman. You know, and I thought, <laughs> so everyone thought I was odd from the moment. I, I felt that everyone thought I was a bit odd. So that taught me just to be very authentic to who I was. and. I was there to learn. I knew I needed to learn if I, I'd chosen this profession. So for me, the barriers were sometimes in my mind. Sometimes they were reality because I also, I don't drink. So that that was like a real, not only is she a woman, but she doesn't drink moment. I had a few times from some of my bosses because that was the culture, you know, that you had there. Um, but on the flip side, people always remembered who I was. <laughs> So you know, on so I, so for me, it was about being very true to who I who I was, and it was just about you know exploring and expanding, yeah, expanding those opportunities. Don't get me wrong; there were some quite lonely times in there as well. There were some pretty lonely times, but I just loved the learning, and and it was I wasn't trying to prove a point or anything. Um, I just was drawn to what I was doing. And was it the same on the, are you talking about the engineering and the rowing side there? That there were yeah, both. But you just kind of charged in anyway. I did, I charged in anyway, to be honest. And don't get me wrong, I had, you know, there, there were times and I thought, why the hell am I doing this? You know, and, and there were some difficult conversations sometimes. And But all I ever saw were these people who there were all, there was always somebody who just wanted to support you or just wanted to mentor you or so for me it's just you, we've all got to just go out there and prod and poke around a bit and 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 actually it's it's interesting because sometimes people will say to me you know oh the men they didn't support you well actually a lot of the men did support me and if I felt strong enough about something I moved on you know and I didn't I didn't hold up the banner of saying you're treating me differently or because I wanted to be recognised for who I was and what I did. And um, and so, you know, if I wasn't happy in the situation that I was in, then I was prepared to go and move on somewhere else. 
But I have to say, Tees Rowing Club, apart from they were always chucking me in the river, even when we, even before we'd race, sometimes it got thrown in the river. <laughs> sometimes it got held by my ankles and ducked on. That's why I'm very protective of all coxes as well. Um, but then I was also taught some fantastic um, tricks of the trade by Chris Williams's sister, Helen Williams. She taught me some great ways for Cox's revenge, which I do pass on to Cox's down the line, I have to say, um, about how to get your own back. But for me, it generally was just about, you know, go out, life for living, don't have any regrets. Would you like to share any of these Cox's revenge? No. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by this. We're getting a head shake, Lou, and we're getting a no. This is <laughs> but, but this is this is actually something. You know, we we've spoken to how many people? Is it sixteen people? Something like that. Sixteen, seventeen people. And you are the second dedicated Cox we've had on. You know. Actually, this is something that I don't think gets talked about in rowing enough. And I don't think that, you know, it's, it's like, how do we support coxes? How do we bring coxes into the sport? And, and how, do you, how do you tell someone how to be a cox? Where, 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 do you, where do you start by saying, right, this is how you steer a boat the size of a double-decker bus with a postage stamp sticking out the back? I will come to coxing. Can I just rewind on something, though? Yeah, yeah. Just quite an important point, but I will come back to the coxing. I can remember Di Ellis, you know, I mean, Di, we, mm-hmm. one of the questions asked is my mentor. Di, Di Ellis taught me loads. She really did. And I can remember being in a meeting with, um, it was the Women's Rowing Commission, which Di was chairing at the time. And I was the Northern representative. And, and people were talking about we need female-only coaching courses and things like that. And I was getting irate. Now, I've got older brothers. I worked in engineering. I was coxing men's crews. I, for me, that just wasn't reality, and I couldn't get my head around it. And Di Ellis, as people people who know Di will, will understand, she very politely bounced me out the room, said, let's have a break. Kate. <laughs> and she did it ever so nicely. She did it ever so nicely. And, and But it was a big lesson that I learned. And it was about the fact that I was comfortable in this environment of, you know, because I worked in engineering, because I had older brothers, et cetera, et cetera. But for many, for many people, it, it, it wasn't an area that they were comfortable in. And that actually sometimes you need to help people develop their confidence in the community that they're comfortable with. Yep. And, then, and that was a really important lesson for me to, to learn. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying there weren't ever barriers and there haven't ever been um, judgments, because of course there have been. But I just don't give them any, I just try not to give them any um, power, if that makes sense, to move through. Mm. So then coming back to coxes and power, because we all know coxes have the power. Let's segue there. Yes. Um, <laughs> so firstly, when you're, for me, when you're coaching whatever you're coaching, you need to understand what people's motivations are, first of all. Whether you're a rower or a cox, understanding why is it that they want to be there in the first place. You need to, it's not, you know, if if you're coxing an eight, there's nine people in front of you, all different, different motivations, different ways of working. For me personally, I like to try and really understand each of those nine people and where they're coming from. So the first thing is, as well, is not to ignore the cocks when you're out, to actually feed them through the, you know, make sure the crew knows that you're feeding instructions through the cocks. Make sure you're asking the cocks what they're feeling, because a cocks can feel a huge amount about what's in a boat. You can feel whether people are taking the catch smoothly, 
you can feel whether the boat's running you can see the angles you can see who's so the, the cox is incredibly instrumental even if you're lying in a front loader and i hated the front loaders but i was in like the original prototypes um but even if you're in a front loader you can still feel it you can still get a sense for how smoothly the boat is running so the cox really is the eyes and the ears so as a coach on the outside you can't actually feel what's going on in the boat so asking, you know, treating the cox as a genuinely equal member of the crew is critical. One of, the, one of the things that worries me about what you said is I'm just looking back at when I was coaching and it's like, yeah, I didn't do that enough. I really didn't. And it's just like, oh, damn it. OK, there we go. It's also about looking after their welfare a bit as well. So when I say this as someone who completely destroyed her back and a lot of that initially was down to coxing, um, and it's simple things like just checking that they're not getting hit on that. Because if you've got a rough crew, what happened to me was you kept you kept getting hit every time. And before yeah. I knew, I had a great big ball on the base of my spine that was just a constant swelling. And of course, you don't do anything with it. So it's a repetitive strain. You're just getting bashed all the time. Now, coxes, you know, modern boats are designed really well for coxes now. But you still might want to think about get them to take a spare life jacket or a towel and rolling it up so it's protected around their back. Or if they're in a front loader, putting a... I mean, the first time I was in a front loader was at Leeds Regatta, Tees Rowing Club's Elite Elite Four, and they just, they were decided to pose a bit in their boat. They didn't tell me they are about to do a firm for 10, and I disappeared into the bottom of the boat. <laughs> you know, and it was like... And I was literally lying on a scaffold... You know, your neck was on a scaffold pole. I mean, now, if, if I was coaching anyone with a front loader, I'd make sure they had something that they could push their feet against, some, a beach ball or a football or something like that. So there, there's some of those basic things. And also, coxes get cold as well. So you need yeah. to make sure you've got their right... You know, the right um, uh, level of clothing on as well. Yeah, think, that that one, that one, I, I did manage to get right. It was just like, well, yeah, okay, no, you give them your top. It's, this is, they're, yeah. they're not straining. So I think Lewin and I should, should make it perfectly clear. Well, I, I, certainly at that time at Airtroff, we never actually threw Maddie or Lucy into any bodies of water anywhere, largely because we were genuinely <laughs> terrified of them. So we, you know, there was, yeah, that, oh, we, we, we <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. You hmm? just don't want to do it because you, you, you just don't know what's on the riverbeds. You just don't know what's yeah. around. You and don't know what you're throwing them into. accidents with it, to be honest. Yeah. But the, the other thing as well is, is asking the crew to give the cocks feedback. You know, what were, the, what were the phrases that worked for you? What were the phrases that didn't work for you? Certainly with Maddie and Lucy, who were both very different coxes, but were both excellent coxes. Um, I was very aware after being a little while at Agecroft and sort of getting into rowing and reading around it, that there was an old school kind of thing that um, I remember Steve Redgrave, I think talking about Neil Shugani as, um, you know, just extra dead weight in the boat sort of thing when it was the rowers who did all of, all of the work. And we never, we never saw our coxes like that. Certainly not Maddie and Lucy, because they, they came down to every session. They came to every training session, they were, they, were, they were part of our crew. So it wasn't just eight guys and someone steering. They, they were on the same journey with us, which, is, which was when we set our season's objectives and all of the rest of it. We all bought into it. And in whether there was a team meeting or a, a crew meeting or a debrief, 
their voice was was as important, if not more important, because they had the objectivity. So I might say something about what I was feeling from the seven seat, but Lucy and Maddie could actually see what was happening behind. I know we talk about Agecroft being kind of a you know club of northern barbarians, but I think generally, certainly in the crews and squads I've been in, Coxes have been integral because there's no crew without them. Yeah, and Dennis would understand that because Dennis and Kevin or all of them would understand that because you were looking to win. High performance club, you're going to want every member of that crew to be an equal partner. And Coxes, I know the races I've won and the races I've lost. I absolutely know where I've made mistakes and, and gone in. And I listen, I'm not talking at a high echelon level of you guys. You know, I was very happy that we got... To Friday at Henley. That was a big deal for us. <laughs> you made it to Friday. You made it to Friday. <laughs> Friday. I, should, I should say that was something like 1986. And as someone kept wanting to say, we were the slowest to get through to the Friday, but we beat Oxford Polytechnic. We were very proud of that. It was that Oxford? Was that Oxford Poly that then became Oxford Brook Slayer yeah, Giants? Great world. We're happy with that. We're happy. Okay, with that. fair enough. We no, we... the University of Galway the next day, and so, but but the other thing as well for me for Coxing is that, you know, we I'll give you an example when we were I'm on the, the Pushing COVID group, COVID recovery group, and um, so when we were looking at all the guidance. I just picked up the, you know, I, I picked up the phone to Vicky Atkins, who coxes down at Nottingham. Um, she's coxed for home countries at good level. And I just said to her, look, you know, what advice do you think we should be giving coxes when we're coming back for things like the masks, the, you know, microphones? And she she went away. She talked to a number of her friends who are coxes and they came back with this brilliant checklist of which we adopted about 95 percent of it. So the coxing guidelines we have were defined by coxes. And is that something that, you know, only coxes can do? Because I, I don't know, I think that it's something, I won't name clubs, but there have definitely been clubs I have been at where the coxes have been an afterthought, particularly after Eight's Head. Yeah. And and I, I I've actually got, quite cross about it even though i was just like i was straight in the boat you know oh right we're putting a quad together lewin do you want to be in that one yeah they they don't they don't it's really interesting because people will train and train and train and train and train but then they why wouldn't you why wouldn't you work with your cocks they're your eyes in the boat they're going to give you the best course they're going to make sure you don't destroy your equipment they're going to be the people who are going to lift you up when your heads are dropping and it's not quite going to plan as I say, I know the races at a very low club level. I know the races I've won and the races that I've lost. The crews that I've coxed at two are still at tees will probably tell you the races I've won and the races that I lost. But because um, they can remind me about it every year. But but why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you take that ninth advantage? Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense, particularly it, it frustrates the hell out of me when I see crews on the tideway sometimes, you know, at the heads. Yeah, expensive boats, you've been training for this, yeah, big event for you. And then you might have a little kid in or somebody who's just been thrown at the last minute. You're not going to get the best line for yourselves. It's so I think not- Coxes, what I would say is Coxes are pretty feisty characters in the main as well. And and I think it's brilliant some of the stuff that people are doing at the moment. It really is. And I think um 
it, it's great to hear the voices of people like Zoe to Toledo, etc., sort of really coming through. And to be honest, the, the person who inspired me when I was a Cox was Nigel Weir. So Nigel okay. Weir, you know, he came up, um, Nigel, you know, Cox, international Cox himself, brilliant coach, great coach educator. And he said something really simple, just, just take out a tape recorder with you, record what you're saying when you're out. I think that's quite standard practice for people now. You know, listen back to it. So we take videos of crews and then we do, you know, step-by-step -step analysis, but we probably don't do that with coxes. What you're basically saying is when we're talking about an eight, we're not talking about an eight, we're talking about a nine. And when we're talking about, about when we're talking about a four, we're not talking about a four, we're talking about a five because it, it's an integral part, yeah. part of the crew. And I think maybe, I don't think we were particularly enlightened at Agecroft. I mean, I, I, can't, I couldn't speak for the other guys, but they, they were part of our boat. They were part of our squad and part of our crew. We had Pete Holmes, brother of Andy, as, a, one, as one of our coaches for a year, and he was absolutely superb. Uh, very counterintuitive to the current British rowing orthodoxy because he comes from a, a more Spracklin kind of yeah. style in, in terms of the profile. But Lucy and Maddie worked with him on, on the calls, what the feel of the boat was. And when we were trying to get the stroke profile down on the erg, it was Lucy at first and then Maddie and Pete who, who were going around and getting our backs in the right angle and all of the rest of it. You think as a rower, you, you train, you know, we did 20, 24 hours a week at Agecroft training and they were there for all of that as well. Why would you then treat them like second-class citizens? Because they're yeah. they're they're not. They're you have no boat without them. You have no crew without them. Yeah. So I can remember when I first when I first went to um, you know when I first started racing and winning, you used to get like a half pint pot. So the crew would get a pint. <laughs> you'd get a half pint pot. Now you could, on the one hand, argue that the seat fee wouldn't include the coxes fee. So you can't have it always because there's still you know money to be spent. But it it was just that it was just a symbol really. The whole crew get nice big pint pots, and you get like a little hobbit's half pint pot. Yeah, but it's 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 symbolic symbol. of, of your standing or of the way you're perceived. It's rubbish. Yeah, it is. It, it's a symbol. But but I think also things have changed now. So you know, getting coxes out in sculling boats is really good. Because it gets it gets you a really good feel for the the water. But I know I'm kind of working with someone at the moment. They don't necessarily like being out in a sculling boat, but they um, but actually they they really they like coming out in the launch with me. So I take them out in the launch with me when I'm allowed back on the water. I've only I've seen them for four months, but you know we'll get back out on the water. We'll come out on the launch. Let's have a look at the water. Now I learnt a lot of that from the stroke of a boat. So in York City. I used to get dragged along sometimes to Cox, the York City four that had John Warden, Chris Williams, Dave Coverdale, um, Matthew Gordon was in that, um, Phil was in that as well, um, Phil Jones, um, and Alan Whitwell guest a few times as well. And now John Ward used to absolutely take me under his wing. He was the stroke seat, I was in the Cox, He'd stop, he'd show me the lines where we at York City, he'd tell me the calls, he'd be perfectly brutal with me in a constructive way about this was working for us, this wasn't working for us. And that was a that was like I'm talking about 1983, 84, and that still lasts, that still stays with me today. And that that and I see John doing that. He's now at St. Peter's School, or he was at St. Peter's School, you know, a year ago. I'm assuming he's still there. And I've watched him 
repeating that pattern as he goes through coaching concerts. Yeah, that's brilliant, to be honest. Um, you know, again, it, it's it's this whole side of the sport that I I don't really understand very well. I hope I'm right in saying you've not only been a cox, cox, you're now on the coaching side as well. Yeah, I've been coaching for years, so. And so, I mean, was that was that a natural transition? I mean, I I feel that more coxes should coach just as like, but I mean, it, it, it was that just a simple thing for you? Was it very deliberate or? How did that come about? I guess I've always been a bit involved in, if I've got a bit of knowledge, I'm happy to share with that knowledge. And, yeah, as I say, at the time, I was the only female member of Tees Rowing Club. So if I needed to, if I wanted to try and get some other women in, then I had to do the sort of like the original Learn to Row courses, really, back in the 80s. Then I became captain of the club in 88. Um, and then I ended up, um, as I say, just getting involved in running some community programmes, and then one day, um, Colin Brown, who was our regional development um, manager at that time from British Rowing, or ARA as it was then, he said, oh, you should go and do the coaching course. So I went and did a coaching course. Then it was like, you should go and do another coaching course, do another coaching course. Oh, you should become a coach educator. But I also, my role took me overseas as well. So, you know, in the early 90s, I was building a chemical plant in Tuscany, for example. Um, that was terrible. It was a really hard gig, but somebody had to do it. I can remember in my hotel, in my hotel in the middle of the night, and somebody rang. Literally, I was the only person in the hotel because it was winter season, and someone came along and said, "Oh, there's a phone call for you. you had to go downstairs in your pajamas." And it was T's Rowing Club saying, "We found a way that you can still be captain of T's Rowing Club." And it was like, "I can't be. I'm out here for six six months to two years. Not possible." And so when I came back, having gone as a very skinny, athletic cox, I came back as a slightly more rotund, not such a you know slim athlete anymore. And I just really started to get involved in more of the um, the coaching side. I, I loved it. I love introducing people into into the sport. I love working with people to help them realise their aspiration. I don't care what that is. If it's just getting in a boat, I'm not bothered about what they win or, you know, if, if they've got a goal, then let's help them with it. So it just seemed to become a bit of a natural, it just seemed to be natural. I was coaching at work as well. I'd now, you know, I was doing quite a lot of coaching within my work, in my professional career. And then um, I remember getting a postcard from Dialis. Dialis popped up again. Um, something like 2005, 2006 saying, Kate, have you? Um, would you consider becoming chair of um, the coaching committee for Amateur Rowing Association? Di was always very keen to make sure that there was um, an equity of the, if you like, full representation of the sport. So it wasn't just Thames focused and it wasn't just from certain. And I was probably like completely at the opposite end of what a lot of the people were around there at that time. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way at all. You know, I was operating out of Tees Rowing Club. I was very much a community club person, uh, but I was doing coach education. So I was doing coaching as a profession as well, uh, but not in the rowing sense. And, and I was like, are you sure you're the right person here? And then I ended up doing that for 11 years. And, you know, I, I, I never expected to chair that for 11 years. So for 11 years, I was going up and down on the East Coast line you know, going to lots of meetings and getting involved in lots of things. And it just continued from there, really. I, I pretty much 
buggered my back up in the early 20s, had a fusion in my neck. So I then ended up just focusing on coaching, really. And then one thing leads to another. Don't get me wrong, I've had my moments where I thought, I've had enough. So I can remember um, coaching the men's squad for a while. Um, Then I ended up having a fusion on my neck and that kept me low. They kept ringing me up saying, are you doing all right? Are you doing all right? And I thought they were really concerned about me. And then they started offering to take me down the boat club and the launch would be ready. We want you back coaching. Okay, I'll come back out coaching. <laughs> you know, we've all done You've all done that, haven't you? And then I had a bit of a rest. Now I'm back coaching juniors at the moment, juniors and students. And I love it. I absolutely just love it. You've rode and coached and coxed through the, the pre-Jürgen age, the Jürgen age, and we're now kind of, we're entering the post-Jürgen. It could be anything. It could be a brave new dawn. It could be the start of the apocalypse or the Ragnarok. We're not quite sure yet, but... You've seen every change in, in, in rowing. You've seen kind of the club rowing where it was, you know, train as hard as you can, maybe twice a week and then down for a paddle on a Saturday. You've seen the institution of the high volume approach. Could you maybe take us through some of the good and the bad of it? So for me, I, I can't really comment about the pre-Jürgen era um, other than what I, do, what I do know is that the people that I coached down at, sorry, that I coxed at T's Rowing Club, so, like, when I got there at 85, they had a decent elite eight, you know, and they used to compete against Agecroft a lot. Um, but they were all the sort of same era, and, and and they were decent, and they trained hard, but they did different type of training. So they they would they'd go running, they'd go down their, you know, the weights, but it wasn't necessarily all together. You'd have a couple of sessions a week, but there was a trust amongst yourselves that you would be doing the training. Um Sometimes they turn up with a bit of a hangover on the Saturday and Sunday morning and their way of training would be to, you know, sweat it. They'd sweat it out, but they did all right on their training. You know, they did okay. They knew when to play hard. They knew when they had to recover a bit. What I, what I then started to notice was it got very serious. I think I was first aware of it when there was, I won't say who it was, but a coach turned up at our club. So a very, very, very respected athlete turned up at our club and he saw the potential and he laid down some new rules. So the person who was notoriously late but did work as a gas fitter, so he could get called out sometimes, literally he'd turn up 10 minutes late and the boat had gone, wasn't waiting for him. And so they started to bring a bit of a southern, you know, shape into our little world up in Stockton, really. And I began to think, oh, okay, that's interesting. So it challenged my thinking. I then started to go to the British Rowing Coaching Conferences or the Amateur Rowing Association Com- Coaching Conferences. And there was one in particular, well, it was the first one I went to, really. And it it was like a real brilliant new world for me. I was learning all this stuff that I'd never come across before. It was really appealing to my engineering mind. You know, you're a bit in awe of everything that was going on. And I fell into that trap of saying, I've just heard the GB squad are doing 12 sessions a week and they're doing VO2X and they're blah, 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 I've got to do that. But most people couldn't sustain that. And then, so I actually think in some respects, we were too successful at saying, this is the way GB rowing doing it. And then club coaches going along and saying, right, this is the way we're going to do it for our club coaches. I think we've pulled it back a different way now. So I hear people like Pete Shepard um, consistently saying, develop the athlete first. 
He's Steve Gunn saying it over and over again. Develop the athlete first. Louise Kingsley and co. Um, and I think through lockdown as well, because people have not been able to get on the water. Um, not everyone's got ergos, although we think everybody does have an ergo. They really don't all have ergos. I've been hearing that again. You know, so get yourself doing couch to 5K. Get yourself doing some Pilates or yoga. So I think that... It really depends on the levels that you're wanting to train at as, as you come through. So I think that um, for me personally, I can only, you can only talk through your own experience, can't you? And at my low level that I coach at, you know, I can remember sitting down with some A-level students. They could only commit so many times down the rowing club. So we sat down and we figured out what was it they enjoyed doing. I think someone of you, I think one of your previous, was it Jez or someone like that spoke about it as well? Yeah, so what was it that you enjoyed doing it, doing? When are you going to do it? How does that fit in with your, you know, your study time? And then this is what we're going to aim for. And we trusted people to, I trusted people to do that. And actually they had a fantastic season. Okay. In the North, it wasn't winning women's handy or anything, but they had a fantastic season. They actually won everything that they went in for. So I think that I think we can adapt things a little bit. I think we lose that sight sometimes about developing the athleticism first. Um, I mean, I'm 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 no person to be trying to sort of push this approach, given just how difficult it is to make me do something that isn't on the rowing machine. I, I'm, I'm one of these slightly strange people who actually <laughs> loves being on a rowing machine. Um, <laughs> I do think there's a there's a huge amount to be said for that, and I, I think particularly with juniors, particularly in rowing schools, I, I think they need to actually work on getting the kids out of the boat. You know, I I, I have seen fourteen term rowers. You know, that they've been there for five years, and there was one term that they didn't row, and that was their first term when they didn't actually know what rowing was. Yeah. Um. And and I do think you know get out there and you know. Try the football, try rugby, you know, badminton, something, anything. You, you know, you, you're, you're young and you're, you're not going to lose all that fitness. It will just come back. I think, it, I think it generally depends, obviously, at what your path is and where you're going. And I think for the coaches as well, about what pressures you've got on you as well. Look, where I coach in my club, I've got zero pressure on me for my crews to perform and deliver and win. Absolutely none. You know, we create an inclusive environment. If you just want to come down a row once a week, you're going to come down once a week. We'll be honest with you about where you want to go. We've got a couple who are just putting those first little paws on the, they're on the DICE program. So they're just taking those first, DICE is the Diploma in Sporting Excellence, 16-year-olds. So they're, they're at the bottom end of that, but they're just, they're in the long game. So we play the long game, but I can play the long game. I've got no one coming along to me complaining at all, you know, People want to see our kids happy, growing, and our philosophy is get to 18, fit, healthy, ready to move on, you know, ready to go to wherever you want to go to do that long. So I love the fact, I love going to Bucks Regatta because lots of the our juniors are still rowing and they're still in events. And if they're not rowing in an event, they're, at their club, you know, they're doing club captains and things like that. But I think when it comes to, I think the other thing as well is our knowledge moves on as well. And again, I, I'm really lucky that I've spent um, quite a bit of time observing on the START programme, for example. And what's very clear to me there is they don't, they have, they have this thing where they seem to have, um, 
they have a, an A row, a B row, a C, a D, and E is split into three. I think that's right. No one ever sits in the A row. That, that's apparent. But in order to progress up the groups, you have to demonstrate that you can survive up the groups. So they look at their core, they look at developing their athleticism, they look at their technique, they look at their skills on the water. And the aim is like once you start to move up, you move up quite quite quickly. It strikes me it's a bit of fun as well. You know, people are developing, people are getting to know their bodies work better, they're getting to understand the technique they're being asked to do, they're getting inquisitive, they're challenging more. It's not just a machine that's going through. But so it's interesting listening to them as well and where they say they've got that real good understanding of why they're doing what they're doing. I'm not in a position to question, it's not my area of knowledge, I'm not in a position to question the sports science behind the loadings. I can only work with what's presented in front of me, the knowledge that, that I've got. So I know when I when I started off rowing, I really struggled to hold the catch position. Again, I would get, yeah, rubbish, yeah, rubbish, yeah, rushing the catch, yeah, rushing the catch. Now we know that, you know, if you've got tight hamstrings, if you've got tight hip flexors, you're going to struggle to hold that position. Well, I tore my hamstring when I was about 13, 14. So, yeah. but I didn't know that that was impacting on the time. I do now, so I'm really careful about things like that. So we know about that now. Then we know about backs. So we've done all the stuff around core and glutes. Now you hear about hip injuries, you know, early onset hip injuries. So again, you know, there's, there's, I've noticed that there's a recognition that it's not about ergos, ergos, ergos. Ergos, that's not a, that's that position, with, particularly with your hip. Now again, I'm not a, you guys are far more brighter than I am on this sort of stuff. But, you know, that, that socket is, it's not a natural movement for those of us in the West in particular to be sat like that. So if you're doing that over and over and over again, if you're doing like miles and miles of just front stops paddling, it's got to be having an impact. So we know that stuff now. So we should be able to work with our athletes to try and minimize the chances of them getting injured as they go through. And of course, as we pull the backs and we've got, I guess you're just shifting the loads around the body. Now, I'm not a physiologist. I had to retake my biology O level. I don't pretend to have that knowledge. But that's one of the things which I've been picking up. So firstly, we were too successful at saying, this is what the GB squad do. Club coaches, excited, go away and do that. Now I think we're getting much better at reeling that back in. And the knowledge and the learning that's coming out. I think the webinars during lockdown have been outstanding. Doing the local 10K was an achievement, but now people aren't just doing 10Ks. They're not just doing one marathon. They're doing... 26 marathons in 26 days and they're doing ultra marathons and the loading on the body and we're much more aware of people doing these extraordinary things but what's starting to filter back is is the the toll that these things can also take um Absolutely. and it's one thing if you're an elite athlete going for a gold medal to kind of load up you know to reach the pinnacle of the of the sport um <laughs> but, but but for the average person to maintain that loading and think it's normal, it's not. It's something that an, an elite athlete might do for four, eight, twelve years now, maybe, and then and then transition kind of back down. Yeah, I think I think for me one of the great things as well has been the emphasis on technique as well. You know, from the moment I started going to those coaching conferences, and I think that's run through now for like 15, 20 years. Um, you know, people like Rosie McLaughlin has really been pioneering this and 
um, I say Steve talks about it, all the coaches talk about it, all the GB coaches do. It's about getting the technique right. So I've got um, one of my very few Teesside University rowers left. We're going to have to completely rebuild because they're pretty much all finalists. So we've not been able to unlearn to rows this year. But one of them is a very, very good cyclist, an extremely good cyclist. So why am I going to worry about taking him out for a long rowing session when actually he just needs to learn how to scull? Because for him, if he gets bored, he will literally do coast to coast twice on a weekend. So when he's, I mean, he would say, what did you do this weekend? Oh, I did coast to coast twice. Yeah, that's a lot of miles you know, across. So actually what we want to do is spend that time developing his technique. I don't know if there is any sort of easy answer to this, but how do you measure technique? How do you say, no, that's good rowing? Well, I didn't decide on it. The people who are very good at these things have come to that conclusion. You need to do an interview with someone else to say how they've arrived at what's the perfect technique. And that, that, that would have evolved over years. People have tried things, they've looked at what's worked, and they're continually refining it. Uh, you know, I've had the privilege to talk to a lot of our GB coaches. You know, they've got incredible backgrounds. They really have. It's a lifetime of learning and perfecting and, and mechanics. You know, <laughs> I can remember in, I think it was on a tweet and it was something from British Rowing saying, you know, we've got a coaches webinar coming out. What's that key question you'd like to ask someone? So I'm allowed to be a bit mischievous. Well, I'm probably not allowed to be mischievous, but I, I wrote this knowing that it was going to cause a real, I said to pause or not to pause. That's the question. And I just left it like that and ran. <laughs> and I got, I got so many papers thrown at me and the physics of why it was good and why it wasn't good. So, so for me, it's about curiosity. And, you know, there are some quite fundamental things that you can look at. You know, if you look at the mechanics, um, you want to get a boat moving smoothly. You know, there's no point in having a long stroke if it's not an effective long stroke. There's no point if you're, you know, one of my hates and my juniors will tell you I'm hounding them about this all the time at the moment feathering underwater you're just throwing a anchor out aren't you every time so so there are some real fundamentals that haven't changed it's then thinking about how you're going to get the, the best leverage for that yeah and yeah. you know so for me I trust I trust our GB rowers when they say if you like this <laughs> This is the shape of the yellow canary you should be aspiring to be. And I say that random thought because I live in a place where we have lots of shows where they you see, you know, the ferrets and the rabbits and the and the you'll understand what you're I'm taking you home there, aren't I? Taking you home there. You see, okay. there we have <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Aaron's getting very excited there. You know, where we have our country shows, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have your I'm filling shows. up. I'm filling up. It's yeah. And they home. were literally, I can remember, I used to work with someone who judged canaries. And I said to him, how do you judge a canary? And he said, well, every year, you know, the whatever the association of, so I'm sorry, you're probably now going to be, I know you've got lawyers on from James Cracknell and all sorts. You probably get the lawyers from the association of canary judges now as well. But he said, you know, we came up with a shape of a canary, but they even had like the panatoni, the, the different types of shades of a canary and they're measuring their chest and they're measuring the color. 
that's no different, I guess, for our sport of saying we we spent lots of time studying, reflecting, looking at what's the right thing for the athlete, the right thing for the boat. This is a technique that this is my real junior, you know, 101 club coach approach to that. I mean, the first thing I'd like to say is there, Loon, I told you we have civilization up here. It's just not the sort that you're used to. I've been looking for a rescue puppy or a, a dog. And I went to the RSPCA in down the road from me. They didn't have any dogs or kittens, but they had loads of ferrets that they, they quite literally had loads of ferrets that they were looking to rehouse. I used okay. to go rabbiting when I was a child with ferrets. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, um, I, well, that's my application to Leander and uh, accomplishment. <laughs> well, don't worry, I'm not a member of Leander either. Okay, so. can't have him um, in. He used, to, he, used to, he used to go out with ferrets, for God's sake. So we're all coming to Go and interview some of the teams. Go and interview someone like a Pete Shepherd who's been around for a very long time. Or Yeah, we'd love to have those sort of chats um, because the, the thing that we kind of noticed is we have a very definite, we, from top down in, in, in British rowing now, we have a very definite stroke profile, whereas there used to be a Cambridge style and a Thames trade. You know, Martin yeah. Cross was talking about getting his back hunched over to get as much, yeah, as yeah. much length as he possibly could. And that's why all of the rowers of that era have this kind of, you know, this curve to their back. And we had a chat with Eric Murray, because obviously his technique with Hamish Bond, when you look at it, that they're very different physically. And their technique isn't, it's not British in its style, but he said, we, we, but we just blended our styles together. And, and it's possibly something that would only work for us. But the benefit of the British system was you might have, at any level, you might have an eight that becomes a four and you can just drop athletes in because the 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 the, the profile is now standardized. Yeah. And and that was a that was a that was a very conscious decision, I think, to, to get that as well. Mm. So if you have someone like you know, Angelo up at uh, Angelo Zavarino up who who's done amazing things at Newcastle University. Mm. Um and you know, he very much brought an Italian style of, you know, a lot of lean back and yeah. you know, that was in there. And they you know, they they've produced some incredible numbers into the squad. Um and so there's a lot of work has gone on, I think, to perfect that technique so that people can drop in and out of boats much more easily. Mm-hmm. But one of the one of the things you might want, because I know you two guys are really into research, uh, one of my ex-juniors who's actually revolutionizing golf coaching quite a bit over in America, um, he um in terms of personal training and stuff, he talks about the Scottish hip. You might want to look up the Scottish hip um, and saying that difference between, you know, if you're somebody in Vietnam and you can quite comfortably sit on your haunches and it just looks effortless compared to someone in Scotland. And he, he's, he's got all the, you know, the scans and, and everything showing that difference. So if you think about rowing, as I say, I'm, I'd say this again as someone who failed a biology O-level first time, you know, so it made sense to me when he was explaining it to me that if you're sort of doing that position over and over and over again, then actually, if that's all you're doing, then where's the counterbalance for it? So, you know, again, I think what's been really good is the way that the GB team have been constantly, you know, feeding this sort of level of education and understanding in through the club level where we get it wrong sometimes is if you want to come and win, you know, um, I don't know, say T's regatta, you know, men's fours, you don't need, you don't really don't need to be training 12 to 16 times a week. Okay. I, I, I have this kind of slightly sceptical approach to rowing coaches and I, I, you know, it, it's it's entirely personal, and I recognise that it's come from 
running into the wrong rowing coaches at the wrong time in my rowing career. What is it that a rowing coach does that an interested athlete can't do for themselves? Let me spin that round on you. People have heard enough of me saying that. Mm. How would you answer that question for yourself? You can tell she's a committee woman. That was I'm beautifully not a committee done. woman. I've heard you. I've, I've heard your uh, work podcast as well. No, but seriously, I'm just curious. How would you turn that around to yourself? Where I'm kind of like really interested is is in partly there's there's the personal dynamics of it, but as you improve from that state, what is it that coaches bring? that you can't get from a physiology book about endurance training or um, it's not as extensive as it used to be, but Concept2 UK used to have this massive website, you know, and it went into depth on physiology and it had articles from Jürgen Grobler and Terry O'Neill and Kurt Jensen, all these guys. And I, I was always wondering what it was that I was missing in what coaches were telling me in turn it that I had a chunk of strength and fitness that for years and years and years I struggled to turn into effective crew and individual rowing speed and what what is it that coaches do right or wrong to impart that knowledge. No, I can just see Aaron, Aaron wants to dive in and say something here. He wants to say lots of things. What do you want to say? I'm not, I'm not ignoring the question, I will come back to you. I think Lewin's doing himself a bit of a, of a disservice. He, when he arrived at Aidscroft, and I, and I found out he was on stroke side rather than bow side, so he wasn't a direct threat to my seat. I took, <laughs> I, I took to him instantly. I think what he also had, though, was a huge amount of curiosity about physiology and sports science. And I don't think he's naming Dennis or Kev directly, because the you know, basic thing about Dennis is he gets you incredibly fit. And if you're if you're in his squad, he, he has a, he's a he's a high performance coach. He's very effective he at is. doing it, and he also has Kev, who tends to take out the novices' development squad, the people who are heading towards Dennis, and he is wonderful at taking someone who's never been in a boat before and through a mixture of massive experience, great coaching skills, and just warm-hearted enthusiasm, turning novices into people who know one end of an oar from another. And I think in Lewin's case. He had a, this huge engine, and his his curiosity probably ran up against Dennis as well. Just do what I'm asking you to do. Would that be a fair comment? Basically, I didn't like Dennis because he told me to do things that I wasn't very good at to become better. So Dennis de definitely wasn't one of the, the people that I'm worried about because de Dennis very much was pushing me to become part of a system. And... I didn't quite understand the system. Dennis very clearly did understand the system and it's a very, very good system. I'm, I'm thinking of all the people who told me to get my weight over the toes. For, for, the, for the love of God, I, I have been in this sport for 16 years and I still don't know what that means. And I have sat down with coaches and said, when you say get your weight over the toes, what do you mean by that? 
and I've, I've given them options. I've given them multiple choice, and they still haven't been able to explain to me what they actually mean by getting my weight over my toes. And it's like, look, I'm just going to rock over the coach. I'm going to uh, over at the finish. I'm going to come forward. I'm going to put the blades in. I'm going to smack my legs down at the catch. It's like so, pause so, at yeah, the finish, it's, isn't it? It's like having the pause at the finish. Do you put the pause at the finish or not the pause at the finish? Good God, no. Good. <laughs> if, if Eric Murray says no, then that's good enough for I me. I don't like. I, I'm I'm an anti-pause at the finish, by the way. He um, doesn't like it either. For me, there's something about a coach is going to have a style. They're going to have a style. They're going to have their their approach to work, and they're going to have their philosophy. They're also going to have a willingness to learn as well um, and to move through. Um, so for me, I, I can't talk about other people's philosophies. Yeah, you know, as I said earlier, I try and run an inclusive program. I want people to row properly, row technically well, understand why they're being asked to do what they're being asked to do, because I'm not going to be around to do the race. I can't do the race for them. They've got to be able to make their own choices in a race. They've got to be able to um, understand their body and understand if there's a difference between tired and a niggle which just doesn't feel right. And I guess that's because we're all informed by our past. And, you know, if I think about some of the damage over the years, which I did to my own body, it was because I was pushed and pushed and pushed through something. And I wish I'd... Un I wish I knew better about stretching and all that type of stuff when I was there. So, so for me, it's, I come back to a coach can't do the race. So a coach is there to provide for me is to be, to provide the tools and strategies to enable you to do what you need to do. Every individual is going to be um, different. So one of the things I learned from my coxing, going back to my coxing was I could say something sometime, it would make it 10 times worse. And then over time, I would begin to understand who were the crew members that needed the facts, who were the crew members that needed the pictures, who were the crew members that needed to feel it. And then say, right, coming back to my canary, you know, this is the canary we're trying. This is, so this is the role model. This is what we're looking to achieve using video. OK, so this is the video. Break it down. All that sort of stuff that you'd have done over and over and over again, I'm sure. But then encourage people to be inquisitive you want people to be inquisitive you want people to to own what they're doing because they're better for us and we shouldn't be afraid of that bit of challenge that comes in now that's easy for me to say so i've, I've got any pressures against me if you're somebody who again this is my thought it's not a british rowing opinion but if you're someone who's been having your feet held to the you know, the, the coals and that you've got to deliver, I don't know, a Henley win or a national schools win or something like that, then chances are you might just follow something that is right. And that, that might mean that you don't necessarily bring everyone with you along the way. I'm not saying I feel like you can have an awful lot of liable. I might have liable now as well. But um, so for me, it is about being very clear about what is it you're looking to achieve and then trying to break that down. And then if people don't understand it, working together to understand it, because it could be, I've got it wrong. And it's not, a for me, it's not a one solution fits all. And you've got to allow people to own. And I remember reading um, 
Jessica Ennis Hill's book, where she talks about her coach and Tony Minincello, they'd been together from a very young age. And there's a point where she suddenly realizes she knows so much more than he's giving her credit for. And they speak very openly about it from either side. So for me, it also depends on how long you've got with that individual. And, you know, are you a coach who's taking them on a long journey? So for me, I'm working with my athletes at the moment to get them to university so that I can pass them on to the next person. I'm working with one person. I'll probably end up coaching till they give up. What you're talking about is, is, is open channels of communication and having the respect between an athlete and a coach that the dialogue is open. It's not just one way. But you're also talking about the languaging of it. And Lewin, if you, I'm, I'm sorry, Kate, I'd just, I'd just like to ask Lewin, when you're talking about things like, you know, the weight over the toes and, 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 and that kind of thing, was it a, a disjuncture between what you were feeling in the boat and your concept of rowing and their concept of rowing and what they were telling and, and the language that they were using and the concepts they were trying to give to you were not ones that you could identify with and recognize and take on board so it was a languaging issue as much as anything else um i felt that i have run into repeatedly a coaching culture in rowing in britain not in british rowing but in rowing in britain that has certain catchphrases and um that are almost in coaching mood music. Yeah, I And a lot of these things was I, I have a background in science. I did maths and mechanics at school. And I was always trying to actually work out what I was meant to do in, in the most literal, in the most physical and objective sense. And I was being told what to feel in the boat. I was being given these ideas of this, this feeling that you would get when it all went right. By these catchphrases, by these... By, these by, by the catchphrases and uh, I, I'd say certain truisms. My weight's moving. So when you say get the weight over the toes, do you mean directly downwards towards the water? Do you mean perpendicular to the footplate? Do you mean catching my weight as it moves forward in the horizontal plane? I think it should be, but I also do think that within rowing, there are a preponderance of actually quite strange individuals likely. Listen, absolutely. I can, some of my juniors will tell you I come out with some quite random phrases sometimes as well. That, but, and, you know, coaches need to, um, you know, record what they're saying as well. And, and again, as a coach, you know, when you said something which is landing and which something which isn't landing. And it's for every coach to have their own philosophy. And I'm, I'm not judging what those philosophies are. You know, it, it's for everyone to have their approaches. But I do come back to the fact that it's not that one person's right, one person's wrong. We're, we're all, we all have our different personalities. We all have our different ways of working. There's something which, again, was said at a brochuring board meeting recently, which I really liked, which was about moving from assumptions to relationships. And a coach athlete in whatever sport, or if it, for me, if it's a coach and a coaching client in a, in a non-executive sense, it's you're forming a relationship, but that relationship is formed when you start to challenge assumptions on things. 
So, you know, Lewin, are you just being an awkward devil by just not getting what I mean by that phrase? You know, that, that could be an assumption which would take you down the wrong kind of relationship that you might want. But, but asking questions, asking people about, you know, simple questions. I, I've had it where I thought, actually, how do you learn best? Because I thought I was doing something right, but I'm not helping that individual to move forward. And then just a very simple question with how do you learn? Or if, if I don't feel comfortable doing that with a junior, asking the parent, can I ask how they learn best? And then it's about adapting your style as you go through. And I think the very gifted coaches are the people who they're very clear about what they want. I've been very lucky that, like I paid for it, but I went on uh, Robin Williams' coaching course, his masterclass course. And you know, he was talking about, he's very clear about what he wants someone to um, deliver, but he also wants them to have a bit of experiment with it as well, to challenge themselves. So we showed some great videos of Helen Glover and Heather Stanning, you know, sort of challenging themselves on some things. So I think you, you, can't, you couldn't do that if you were just putting people out in a pair for the first time, because you might be doing an incident report. But, um, but you know, it's about, again, experimenting, a coach and an athlete, you know, working something out till you get that communication channel right. And I come back to, as a coach, I can't do the race for anyone that I coach. So I've got to be confident that they understand what they're doing, that they're not going to do themselves any harm that they understand what's going on in their body. If they're a mechanical engineer, that they, they know the mechanics. If there's someone who's got routine, they know the routine. But if there's someone who's an artist or a musician, it's about rhythm and feel and... So you're, you're, the job of a coach, if I've got this right, as you see it, is to empower your athletes to take ownership of it. Hollingworth Lake, they were taking back three little tours there. Hollingworth Lake Regatta, we were there. Um, 2019, I guess it was, sadly, wasn't it? And, and I can remember saying, I would say I'm a great believer, and, and Kath Bishop's doing some great stuff on this, about don't put everything on outcomes, have the processes. That's been around for a long time. If you just have the outcome and the outcome's gone, you, you know, that's not what it's all about. So I always say to, my, to those that I coach, I always ask them, what are their three process goals? Again, that's not rocket science. I've learned that from someone else. I think it's a good thing ahead. And we're at Hollingworth Lake, and I said to them, what have you learned today? Fear doesn't kill you. Panic does. It had been really, really rough. It had been so rough all day. Um, I had some little ones who were doing their first race. None of them went in. Uh, I tell a lie, one did go in. One of the most experienced people did flip in at the start of his final. But... Um, and the parents said, you're saying that all the time to them, Kate. So, but what we'd done on the lead up to that was we'd gone down one day. It was very, very rough. And I said, right, look, it could be like this at Hollingworth Lake. We'll go out in a very safe environment. Let's do some rough water training. But if you don't want to do that, you can come on the launch with me. And some of the little ones came on the launch with me. So what we started to do then is, right, okay, so what, what are you worrying? What, what are you worried about? What is worrying? And believe me, master's rowers can have fear of rough water. I've coached every age group. Um, and say, okay, and even like grown men like yourselves in elite crews, I've, I've coached men's squads as well, and, and they can, you always get someone who's quite fearful of the rough water. And then, but then by doing that, so I remember one of them saying to me, flat water's dark, isn't it? Great observation. Yeah, it is. So what are you going to do if you, I'd actually probably forget what you've told me about the line, and I'm going to head for a little bit of flat water. Great. Okay, so look how the crews are taking the line because the others knew if you want to take the rough water, don't take it head on. 
you know you don't want to take it head on you want to take it 90 degrees and actually you want to perhaps just rein it back a little bit which was a little trick I learned from a, a ferry ship captain I was on a lecture he was giving and he talked about you know ship owners are taught to go straight on but then rack it back a little bit so by going through that sort of stuff actually when I put them out in the water I didn't have any worries about them because I knew that they were going to make choices for themselves and so as a coach once I've pushed them away whatever age they are you know I can't do anything about it now I have to trust them to get on with it so if I don't think they've got that level of ability to make the choices for themselves, I don't think I'm doing my job properly. It's funny you should mention the rough water thing because we, we got the chance to have a chat with Matt. Matt Language came quite out of the blue and he talked about in the lead up to Rio, they were they were very, very aware that the that the, the course was not going to necessarily be lovely. Rough, which wasn't is, it? Yeah, which is something Eric Murray confirmed once they got out in front it was like right we're in front let's just you know make sure we don't do anything silly and, and you know we'll be okay but they would actually deliberately go out when all crews were going in so they knew what it was like to to be in rough water and you know he said there, there, there were times when it, it was level you know it, it was level with the with the gunnels of the boat and we were we were bailing to get back to the landing stage and in our heads that was good prep and he said, when, when we got to Rio, actually, we were in one of the bigger boat classes. It wasn't as bad as it had been for the smaller boat classes earlier in, in, the, in the week. But when we pushed off, we, we knew we had all the bases covered, you know, and it's that kind of building of the skill set. And then, and then the other thing, of course, is doing a bit of a risk assessment around that as well. So if I go down and it's 50 mile an hour winds or something like that, and, you know, I'll always, and again, whatever the age group, I'll always people get a bit fed up on me doing this, but, you know, I'll say to them, okay, guys, girls, guys, you can see the, you can see what the weather conditions are like out here today. So we're just going to do a quick risk assessment. You know, what do you feel about that? And if nobody wants to go out, no one's going to be forced to go out today. So again, people have the ownership on it and it is genuinely a culture which means that, you know, there's no judgment if somebody doesn't want to go out, none whatsoever. There's no pressure if somebody doesn't want to go out. And so by doing that as well, you're creating quite a safe environment. And that's easy for me to do that. I keep coming back to this. I've got no pressure on me whatsoever to, you know, come home with any bling or any or any prizes at all. But But I also, I do executive coaching as well. And it's the same thing there. It's about sitting down with somebody understanding what their aspiration is, understanding where they're at at the moment, looking at where maybe some of the barriers and blocks are. Let's work at trying to put some strategies in place, give you some tools so that you can go and do it yourself. Okay. I mean, no, this is absolutely brilliant. And, I'm, you know, that idea about kind of like giving athletes the choice, you know, looking at the conditions, analysing for themselves, deciding whether they're going out, as individuals, not just as a crew. So, you know, you can actually ha have some people say, it's like, to be honest, I wish I'd had that. I wish I'd been able to make those choices for myself earlier in my rowing career. If I think of the next generation of athletes coming through, my perception, it's only a perception, is that a lot of them are coming through programs such as START, such as some of the university programs where there's been, there's lots of great athletes who are coaching. So if I think someone, Phil Gray. So I remember Phil Gray as a, as a junior, there was a bit of a purple patch of juniors at Yarm School. 
and they're all in coaching now. So Ben Rose over in uh, the Royal Yacht Club in Hong Kong. Uh, Phil Gray went to London University, does some great stuff there. And I think he's at William Borley's now, I think. Mm-hmm. I think he's there now. Um, Chris Boddy, who was in the squad for a while, and he's now at William Perkins. They're all coming through with that athlete, Kat Copeland, now at Headington's, I think. I think Kat Copeland's coaching at Headington's, I think, now. You know, they're all coming through now and they've learnt slightly differently. They know some different things. And, you know, you're seeing a different type of approach coming in because if I think of some of the start rowers, they'll say to me, look, you know, we've had to be quite independent. We've been told what we've got to do. It's very clear what we've got to do. We get to understand and explore what it is we're doing. They've had, they've had to be very resilient to come through. Anyway, sorry, I, I, I realise we, we spent the best part of two hours talking about our coaching and we haven't actually got on to the fact that you are the Deputy Chair, I've got that one right, Deputy Chair of British Rowing and maybe you could tell us a bit more about that, what that role entails and, and how, did you, how did you become the Deputy Chair of British Rowing? Very good question. I keep asking myself that all the time. So, um, so British Rowing has a, it's a limited company. It's a company. It has a board, 12 members sit on the board. There are four independents, you know, all public funded bodies have to have four independents. Um, in fact, there's interviews going on as I speak, um, for two independents because two of our independents are timed out. Um, Mark Davis is um, open nomination, so anyone can apply to be chair. Deputy chair is, um, you have to be nominated via the regional chair, so all clubs and events are in a region, every region has a regional rowing council, and depending on the number of British rowing members you have in that region, you could, you'll also have regional representatives as well, per 1500 um, British rowing in effect. So that's all written down in the articles. So I'm member voted in, Mark is external recruitment. So I think I said earlier, I'd been 11 years, I've been on the ARA executive and those before the days of it becoming, a, you know, the British Rowing Board. When we did all the changes back in 2012, um, all the chairs of the committee came off, in effect, the board at that point, the coaching committee. I was all, to be honest, I'd already started you know, doing my ju- starting to do junior coaching again back in Teesside, getting involved in Teesside Junior, ready to stop getting my annual pass, parking pass at Darlington Station, going backwards and forwards down to London all the time. Um, and then UK Sport came in and basically changed all the code of governance. Um, and that's when they went through the whole, we've got to change the structure of the sport. You might remember some of that stuff that came in. Um, and Gary Harris, who was the deputy chair at that time, had to stand down because of the length of time served. And Anna-Marie Phelps had to stand down as well. Didn't didn't even consider applying. Um, I was approached and asked if I was stand. Um, I honestly thought I was making the numbers up and I was a bit shocked when I was actually voted in. So I, I've done one term um, that was termed causal. So it was like three years. Um, and I've just been re-elected for another four years. Yeah, well, congratulations on that, first of all. Oh, no, I was a, I'd say just. When was the AGM? October last year. You kind of did it to go, oh, go on then, I'll, I'll round out the ballot, and now... Uh, 
that would be disingenuous for me to say it. I mean, I, I live in an area which gets some pretty bu- bad publicity. It's been getting good publicity recently. I guess part of me was, it's still a bit like the person who, when I went to my parents, I said, I wouldn't do mining engineering. And they said, don't be so daft. And then they never stopped me. I did minerals engineering instead. I guess it's my view is if, if someone like myself can do one of these roles, I'm not an Olympian. You know, I live in the northeast of England in Teesside. If I can do it, then anyone from our area can do it type of stuff. So there was an element of my journey hadn't finished yet. I still felt I had something to give into the sports. I felt very passionate that um, we need, it's almost the, I feel a bit emotional saying this actually, it's the Die Ellis legacy almost of making sure that all parts of our sport are represented at that level as well. Yeah. And that's being disrespectful to all the parts that are there. So I just thought, oh, do you know, why not? I'll give it a go. And I can remember putting my CV in and it got absolutely trashed, which was a bit embarrassing as I was helping people develop their CVs at the time. <laughs> I'm very open about that as well. Um, and I can remember um, a couple of people saying to me, Kate, you're not going for an engineering job. Or uh, by now I was working at the University of York in, um, in organisational development. Um, you're going for deputy chair of British Rowing. So it took me like three or four days to get that CV right. And I honestly didn't think that I would get elected. Really didn't think I'd get elected. But I thought, got to give it a go. And now you're there. Yeah, now I'm there. <laughs> People going, why don't we vote for her again? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything we've kind of... You, you seem incredibly comfortable in this role as a pathfinder, as somebody who is like totally prepared to say... No, nobody's done, or nobody sort of quite like me has ever done this thing before. Yeah. But I'm gonna try. I, I, I'm not that at all. You know, I listened to Sally Kettle's stuff and was in awe of what she did. You know, there's Jessica, and I'm ashamed to say I can't. Her surname's gone out of my head. Sorry, but the 21 year old um, last from our area who's just rode solo across yeah. the Atlantic. Absolutely incredible. The women who did the. Uh, I'm going to talk about women, but obviously there's men in there as well. Um, yeah, we get, we get enough press, though. Talk about the women. No, no, but there's loads of pioneers. I'm thinking of the, you know, when I was going through a um, particular transition at work, I was really inspired by the six women who did the rowing across the Atlant- uh, across the Pacific, the losing sight of the shore women. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely inspirational they really were. So I don't think that at all, because I'm not. I'm genuinely not. I think probably is why I said this to um, Aaron. When when I got made captain of T's Rowing Club, bearing I was half the weight that I am now, um, so I was almost a weight-carrying cox, I can remember walking into my open-plan office in Stockton and plastered around the room was Captain Curvaceous because the headline in the Northern Echo was Captain Curvaceous for being made captain of T's Rowing Club in 1988. Once you've had that, then you're just going to get over anything, aren't you, really? So... No, listen, not a day goes by when I don't challenge myself to think, am I doing the sport? You know, am I the right person in the role? Am I doing the right thing for the sport? We've been going for a long time, but what what is it that British rowing, this isn't a challenge question, but just like let people know what is it that British rowing does for the sport? How, How does British rowing affect the rower's life? It depends on what lens you're looking through. There are many lenses that British rowing serves. 
So if you were drawing it out in sort of a, if you had your flip chart up, or you were doing it for your kids, you know, we have a duty to, we have a duty to any participant in our sport, any participant in our sport to provide all the policies, all the procedures, the culture that mean that people are safe doing our sport in all the guises, whether that's from um, a welfare point of view, from have we got bow balls, et cetera, et cetera. There's the infrastructure part. So for competitors, event organizers, et cetera, have we got the infrastructure in place, which means that, that they can go and organize competitions. How have we got the have we got the stakeholder management map in place, which means that our funders believe that we're a safe pair of hands, that they're going to continue to reward? It, it really depends on what lens you're looking at it through. Okay. So there is a bit of a what did the Romans ever do for us sort of thing. I'm not saying we always get it right, but it does for me depend on what lens you're looking through it. It's, it's essentially the good governance of the sport. It is. From every perspective and angle. So whether that's making sure that we that we have funding in place to maintain the programme, whether that's the elite end or the grassroots end, and then how and then how that all fits together. And it's making sure as well that um, we're making the decisions that are right for the sport. So that's we've got we are, if you like, the custodians for the sport, but for the company of the sport. British mm. Rowing is a company. At the end of the day, it's in company's house. You know, we're subject to all the law and liability that's on there. So one of the first questions I remember asking was, what was my personal liability? One of the and the other things is that I've got to make sure we're making, as I say, decisions that are right for the long-term benefit of the sport as well. We've also got to make sure that um, from a board perspective, so I know I've drifted there between the governance of what British rowing does and then what the board role is. I sort of melded the two a bit there. You know, we've also got a responsibility to ensure, though, that the culture, and I, I know you talked about in your earlier notes about Tristan and culture and things like that, that the culture is there as well. And that also that we are not necessarily doing what members want, but what, again, what is right for the sport. That was the first bit of learning I had. I was sent off to some UK sport training and I was given two bits of advice that stuck in my head. One, which I I do continue to struggle with, but I, I've got it in my head, um, which is you're not there to do what the members want. You, you've got to do what's right for the organisation. Given that I'm in the sport all the time, you know, whether I'm towing a trailer or shoving kids off wherever it is, making bacon butties, um, you know, but at the end of the day, we've got to make those decisions which are right for the sport, which the members may not always agree with. And then the other one was, um, if you want to make friends, go and get a dog. You've got to respect everyone around the board, but actually you're not all, you're not all necessarily going to be mates. Very good advice for not just British rowing, but life, I suppose, and also rowing, I guess, too. But just, Loon and I have asked this question of, of pretty much everyone. The IOC's cut down some of the kind of the rowing places. Andy Hodge has been on and, and, and talked about, you know, his concerns for where the sport might end up. Have you, I don't know whether this is privy information, but what are the kind of live concerns that British rowing is currently looking at? Well, particularly at the Olympic level. Well, just well, just kind of in general, what's kind of on your radar for the... Because okay, the, the number one the thing, thing we've got on our radar is... Mm. Um, our membership, our British rowing membership has dropped dramatically. 
and it's dropped dramatically because of COVID. There's no competitions, right? And for many people, the only reason why they take out their race, they take out a British rowing license is for a racing license. So we are, we have lost um, something like seven, eight hundred thousand K just in membership fees of our unrestricted funding. Mm. So at the very time, so going into COVID, we had sort of the best part of 33 and a half, 34,000 British rowing members. We're down to under half that already, and that's only going to drop down a bit more. Hopefully, as we open up competition, people will come back again. So what that means is that we've got less unrestricted funding to spend on making the sport more accessible and doing the projects that we want to do for the good of the sport and the good for the impact of the sport. So that obviously is a big concern for us. Um, I think we've been doing really well, the COVID stuff. There's another guidance update will be coming out tomorrow. Um, but we need to capture that as we help clubs recover back, you know, and competitions recover. Um, and as we know, it's not a done deal. We're not just, I don't think we're all naive enough to think it's just going to be a flick the lights on on the 29th and all is going to be great. You know, we're going to know a week before every step change. The government's already said that of what's going on. I think we're doing that side well and we need to capture that as we as we go through. On the Olympic side, yeah, there are threats. Of course, there are threats. And it's about keeping ourselves relevant. That was a word I absolutely hated when I first came onto British Rowing Board. Um, Andy Parkinson talked about it. I heard other people talking about it. But when you look at things like, um, you know, the the team rock climbing, the break dancing, you know, I, I I suspect cheerleading will come in somewhere along the line. You know, thinking of Los Angeles, I don't know that for a fact, but I just see the the rise of the cheerleading groups at universities. Yeah. So, you know, do we want to be the the you know part of a group that loses rowing from the Olympics. Of course we don't. So you know when we talk about British rowing being the governing body for rowing, we really need and we are working on many many levels. We need to be British rowing for all aspects of rowing, indoor rowing, beach sprints. If you've not seen the beach sprints, so cool, really really good. I, they they are brilliant. I I have cool. seen them and just like. I have still been trying to work out how I get to go and do one at some point. Yeah, you can do it. And there's a guy down at Studley Park, I think it was, or Studley Cove down in Dorset. Um, I know when Phil, so Phil Kite, who's a veteran rower from Tyne Rowing Club, um, he and someone, they went down when the last time it was held at um, Sandbanks and they went to this guy who was just down in Studley Cove or Studley. Anyway, he was just down the neck of the woods. Um, in Dorset and there was a guy there who runs schools in it so you could go down and go so you're holding your British rowing card up very good yeah. um, I like that thank you very much um, and so also you know we're running the the world coastal championships are being held in Wales in 2022 you know so we've we've got to be open to these things and also I think um, again something you said to me Aaron was about the 27 to 40 year old drain it's about finding different experiences for people as well. And, you know, we're doing lots of stuff on the recreational rowing. The recreational committee have done a brilliant job and they continue to do that, you know, in the volunteer group. If we don't, if we don't look at all these other avenues and when and we just stick rigidly, we won't be relevant anymore. So in terms of what my role is, I attend the meetings, obviously, the board meetings. I'm full and good on that one. I chair the meeting with all the regional chairs. So if it, like in some respects, I'm connecting the clubs to the clubs to the board from that point of view. I deputise for 
Mark Davis when I need when he needs someone to deputise for him. I um, get involved in all sorts of bits and pieces. Was going to lots of dinners, you know, before the lockdown. So I've had a bit of a rest from that. I'm pleased to say. I I reinvigorated my my racing license um, because it, it's also good. got level two club coach on there because of um, yeah of, of Roncorn. I, I've actually won a part at Roncorn online, which was really online. Did you? From very good. It's an absolutely brilliant thing. I'll, I have got a Roncorn pot, by the way, from Cox and the York City guys and Elite Fours in about 1984. It chucked it down with rain, I remember. Did no, I run corn. Yeah, we raced Hollingworth Lake. <laughs> we raced Hollingworth Lake. I've never heard so much language between the two crews in the final before. I think it was just as well all the umpires had run inside because it Sounds was about right. free. It was absolute, I mean, it was awful conditions. Um, but the other thing I would you know say as well is that you know British rowing is like any other um, national governing body as well, in that we've really we're not for profit organisation. So any money that we make goes back into the sport so we really really want i mean we've got this really high ambition to get a hundred thousand members in three four years that's a big ask I'm not saying they all have to be racing members at all but you know if we got to a hundred thousand that would give us another two million pounds on restricted funding that we could do to broaden out more accessibility of our sport and to really help the clubs and and just get more people of every age group from every group from every area removing those barriers to get in so that's something we're really really passionate about but really also we we are responsible um you know staff and senior volunteers and all the club volunteers together about you know providing and promoting the infrastructures that we've got to enable people to enjoy our sport in a safe way Mm-hmm. I know it's late well, now. I feel, I feel well, like no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm just sitting here. That that that's about as clear a description as I've ever heard of what British rowing does for the sport, which is you know it's clearly quite important, really. But, but this idea of a hundred thousand members of British rowing, what is, what is something that we 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 do we did the podcast, but just as rowers, as people who are involved in sport. Is, is, is that just how how do we help with that? What? Well, do you know, it's a bit like who was it? Was it I don't know if it was Andy Triggs Hodge or Jez and saying we make it all like all or nothing all the time, all or nothing all the time. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. You know, yeah. wouldn't it be I mean we've got veterans in our club and they went out and just brought their own boat in the end because they just like to come down and have a paddle whenever they want to have a paddle. And they might yeah. rock up and do the odd race and they do pretty well in those races. So you know, I think really it's just staying connected with the sport. You know, if you can pay, pay, you've got your full race, you've got your full license, well done. But, you know, trying to get people to do a Friends of British Rowing membership, you know, staying connected in some way. Yeah. You know, even if even if every past rower just gave an hour back somewhere, an hour back to their club, just just in whatever form, whether that was rocking up at the regatta and providing a few cakes or whatever it was, just something which, you know, helps the whole infrastructure to bring in. You know, you could get, you guys could get involved. I said this where before, there's, you know, Yorkshire region, for example, I know you're not in the Yorkshire region, but Yorkshire region, for example, you know, 
they've had a lot of people in their regional rowing council doing brilliant job for a very long time but they're looking they're on their succession plan they're looking for some people to step in and take on those roles we want to get new blood into the you know into these roles as well you know because or else you're just moving the same people around and people get tired they get jaded with it so you know if you're passionate about making a difference to the sport get involved in your region or your club in some way it doesn't have to be a all or nothing way um but you know there's a there's a you asked me how i got involved in it as i say it was more by happenstance than anything and someone coming along and saying you know do you want to get involved in this so i i got to know dialis because i did a sweep of the northern region back in mid 80s late 80s because i wanted to row at the women's head of the river race and i knew that there were other pockets of women who didn't have a crew to row in so we set up the northern rowing association doesn't hasn't existed for a long time and i just did a sweep and we took down two or three eights and because i did that the next thing it was oh will you be the northern women's rowing representative and then you just saw there was this whole other side as well I got I can remember I was very open with Aaron I was doing my business accounts about two in the morning because I'm a bit of a last minute dot com girl but I'm also a perfectionist and I was listening to the podcast with Andy and I'd already listened to one with um with uh, Matthew and people were saying what we need to be doing is moving away from the six lane racing and taking whole families away and having picnics and I was like what the hell do you think some of us have been doing for the last 35 years and I think one of you said is anyone from British Rowing listening and I sort of sent you a tweet and said yes <laughs> you know a bit quickly um but you know anything where people are volunteering in their their local club or just even challenging when someone's saying oh it's all Oxford Cambridge it's all elite you know the people I know some of the people going through that Oxford and Cambridge boat race at the moment are from my club, you know, yeah. and they're try they're training their backsides off to being there and tremendous role models in their own right. I mean, we 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 tend to sort of finish with a question, which is what what is rowing doing right right now? What's it doing wrong? What can we do better? But I think you've already actually told us most of those things about what you believe. I think the one thing which I would say is um, it's something I we've recognised is that we can't guarantee coming out of lockdown that all the same volunteers that were there going into lockdown are going to be there. Yeah. You know, they may not even be there. I mean, in some cases that might be through, unfortunately, they passed away. We just don't know who those people are. We've got many people who are... Um, Sorry, I shouldn't. We keep a record of the people, obviously, who we're informed of, but don't know whether they're COVID-related or not. But we have we have lost some big stalwarts. Thinking of yeah. someone like Mike Green from Christchurch Rowing Club, he was doing loads of stuff. Now that's not from. I don't think that was from COVID. You know, I have no idea. You know what his cause of, but he'll be massively missed in his club. We can't assume that that people are going to be there to run the regattas and all that sort of stuff. So we've really we've really got to all keep thinking about those people who've been the volunteers and have been keeping things together. You know, if people can go down and offer to do an hour or two bit of coaching or just being there on a learn to row program and helping with the administration, I think that's something we recognize that we really need to work with our, our volunteers who are running our clubs in every guise. So committees have had a tough old time of it. And you go to someone like Ross Rowing Club, 
you know, they've been flooded out three or four times since October 2019. You know, so so I just think we've got this whole army of volunteers um, who will be tired as yeah. well because they've been doing all the same stuff with COVID whilst they've been keeping they've been keeping programs running in all of its guises, connecting people up. And there's been some fantastic stuff that's happened in our sport during during the last year and a half. There really has been some fantastic stuff. So for me, it's 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 all about wherever we can, forming those bridges between the parts of not just our sport, but our our communities and our societies as well. So one thing that people can do is get themselves on the the London Youth Throwing Challenge. And yes. you can look on through Tees Regatta, Boston, you know, Boston Head, I think it is Regatta, Rosson, you know, Ross on Y, depending on where you want where your money to go and London Youth Throwing. People are doing all this stuff, you know, well, why not just put it together for a good cause? Pay, you know, juniors go free, seniors 25 quid a, an entry, of which, so if it's something like Ross, a percentage of that will go to Ross Throwing Club to spend on, you know, getting vulnerable kids and getting junior programmes going again, and the rest will go to London Youth Throwing to carry on with their good work. Take out a British rowing membership because that's going to enable us to have the the more resourced so that we can keep the infrastructure going so that we can get more people enjoying our sport. Every I just think every little bit helps. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing. Just every challenge, every membership, every hour given to some to a club is going to be well received. But I would ask, I would say to everyone, they they really do need to think about the committee members who have, in many cases, I think of our club captain, he's been juggling his job, you know, with his own, you know, training, with being captain of a, a club of 200 people and all that stuff. That's tiring for people. Yeah. Even just if it's just a, you know, thanks to those people. But guys, honestly, I think you, you do a great job at what you're doing. And it's just a conversation, which is, and I, and I, yeah, we're not, I think it's good to, to have those challenges as well. Thank you. Thank well, you very much. I hope you continue doing what you're doing. Well, we, we have wondered if there's a place for us now that everyone does rowing podcasts. Our, our form of cheeky northern irre irreverence and southern research skills is looking very outdated in the cold light of 2021. But um, when, when you when you issue this, I could find that, you know, I'm I'm asboed and asboed out. <laughs> No, we, we wouldn't. You've been, you've been. I mean, thanks so much for coming on. Because I mean, we've said this before, but we literally started because every time we call each other on the phone, we talk about rowing. And then you know, Jack Beaumont came on, and then Hodge came on, and that, and it's just like really, we ring each other up now and go. Proper people are talking to us. We need to start doing proper research. So yeah. Yeah, but what I would also say is, you, you you're very skilled at just having the conversation. And you're informed as well, so don't... I won't self-deprecate too much, which is one of my tendencies. But yes, thank you but for you're, coming but on. But you're passionate about it as well. And um, I mean, I and I listen to your... Um, I have caught up with your webinars now. I'm only halfway through Matthew Langridge's. Mm. But, you know, things like the one you did with uh, Jenny Say, that was really impactful. You could, hear, you could hear in your voices the impact that was having on you as parents as well of... Mm. Oh, that, that 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 was a tough one. That, that was a pretty was, tough one. It was harrowing to listen to, which makes you wonder how harrowing it must have been to live through. Absolutely. Yeah, and then when you when you say like what 
what has British Rowing ever done? What's well, British Rowing's responsibility to provide a safe culture and infrastructure? And it, th there is this air of someone who can get stuff done and will get stuff done and has the confidence and the competence to do that. Yes, I think Kate's, um, the chat with Kate was wonderful because it showed a long and enduring um, affinity and affiliation with the sport and a love and a passion for the sport, but also a trajectory through it that I think a lot of us tend to follow, you know, whether, whether starting out because of family, which we've just talked about with, with Lewin's daughter, and, and then it goes down through the generations, and then you become a cop, so then you become a rower, and because you're a rower, you then start looking after things at your club, and that builds into coaching and administration roles, and eventually all the way up to being the deputy chair of British Rowing. Um, and it's it's a quite wonderful chat. It was wide ranging. It was it was fun to do. Kate is a is a lovely individual, and she was really generous with her time. It was um, and I, I, I think I don't know. We, we we say this too much, and possibly it, it doesn't sort of like do enough for our own confidence in ourselves. But I think we have met many people who I think we would like to be a little bit more like, and. You know, I would like to be a little bit more like Eric Murray or Hodgie, but I'm not, you know, they, they are, I think, almost they're very different kind of human. Whereas I think Kato Sullivan, I can actually listen to what she says and try and be a little bit more like her and I can actually feasibly, practically do that. I think that's a very good way of putting it. And, and I would say that in a rowing sense, in a, you know, being part of the rowing community and being a rower and being a cop and being a coach, listening to Kate will teach you something. But I think as a person, listening to Kate and listening, oh, that's how you dealt with that. You're not necessarily going to be able to be like that all the time but i think i certainly left that conversation thinking I, I need to try that a little bit i need to be i need to just take on board that and maybe once a week i need to think what would kate do and try and put that into my working life my rowing life my family life and just deal with that in the way that she would do it. Um, and that was, I think that was a great thing to listen to personally. I think so. I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue with any of that. And that's rare for me because whatever you say, I automatically take the opposite view. Yeah. Which is your job basically. Essentially um, that's, you... that's essentially that's why you don't pay me. Yes. But that's, <laughs> what you just said was pretty much bang on. Be, be a bit more like Kate. I don't think we do really. Okay. Would you like to hold Bowside's head under while Strokeside actually does something for a change? Yeah, what the hell? Okay. That's it really, isn't it? I think so. 